Welcome to Cinematalk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Mike King. I'm a programmer here. This week, we're continuing our free streaming series with Hill of Freedom, an excellent film by the prolific South Korean filmmaker Hong Sang-soo, which premiered at the Venice Film Festival in 2014, but has not received an official U.S. release until now. Unfolding in a fleet 67 minutes, Hill of Freedom's deceptively simple story follows a Japanese man's return to Seoul to track down a lost love who's nowhere to be found. But this being a Hong Sang-soo film, nothing is so straightforward, and so the film is relayed through multiple narrators, a stack of -of out-of-order letters, and characters who are frequently drunk and seldom speaking their native language. Hong's engaging narrative gamesmanship deepens this funny, tender mind-bender about the misunderstandings between men and women. We're offering a limited number of opportunities to view Hill of Freedom at home for free through June 18th. To receive your link to watch the movie at home, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu. Simply write the word Hill in the subject line or the first line of the email, and we'll get you the link. This week, we're delighted to be joined on the podcast by the great film scholar David Boardwell. David Boardwell is the Jacques Ledoux Professor of Film Studies right here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and is the author of numerous essential texts on cinema, including Planet Hong Kong, Ozu and the Poetics of Cinema, and most recently, Reinventing Hollywood, to name just a few. You can find him online at davidboardwell.net, where many of his books are available for purchase as downloadable PDFs, along with a wealth of supplemental materials, as well as his invaluable blog, where he and Kristen Thompson write about all manner of cinema. Professor Boardwell has been following Hong Sang-soo since his very first film, and our discussion touches on Hong's filmography as a whole, Hill of Freedom in particular, and Hong's visit to the 2001 Wisconsin Film Festival right here in Madison. Here's our conversation. Hi, David. Welcome to Cinema Talk. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So um, today we're talking about uh, Hong Sang-soo, who's a filmmaker that you've been following uh, throughout his career and writing about him consistently. I'm curious to know where you first encountered his work and what caught your eye to mark him as a filmmaker to watch. Well, I, I saw his first film uh, at the Hong Kong Film Festival in the late 90s, The Day a Pig Fell in the Well. And I have to say, I thought it was a good film, but it didn't strike me as anything really extraordinary. Um, that might be in retrospect because it isn't probably quite as um, personal for him in a way because uh, it was an, uh, an adaptation of a story, a published story, that he turned into a film. Uh, it was this breakthrough, and it got a lot of attention in Korea and did play the Hong Kong Film Festival. But I didn't think of it as anything really as a breakthrough. Uh, but then the following year, uh, I saw The Power of Kangwon Province, not at Hong Kong, but at a different film festival, at a European film festival. And I was tremendously impressed by that. And then a couple of years later, I saw The Virgin Stripped Bear by her bachelors. Uh, so in that period from 1996 to, 19, to 2000, I saw the three first films of mm-hmm. his. And the second and third were so striking to me that I thought he really was an original voice. And that's where I began to get my, my keen interest in his work. Mm-hmm. And how did he fit into the world cinema scene at that time? Did you consider him as part of a specific trend or did he seem like his own thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of his own thing in a way, though there was, as you know, a big surge of interest in Korean cinema at about this time. The late 90s was kind of the beginning of a new <clears throat> wave, new generation, call it what you will, of Korean cinema that made a big impact on Asian culture and, and film culture, and also uh, around the world in the festival scene. So there were several other directors that were emerging at this time, um, directors like Lee Chang-dong, Kim Ki-duk, Park Chan-wook, 
Bong Joon-ho in the early 2000s, they were all making their mark. And what's striking to me about that is that it happened at different levels. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. we kind of think of, uh, especially fanboys tend to think that that South Korean cinema of the 90s kind of took off where Hong Kong cinema left off. That is, Hong Kong mm-hmm. was kind of the cool, um, energetic, ambitious cinema of that of, of that region, and that it kind of faded in the mid to late 90s, and then it got the energy got kind of transferred to Korean cinema. And I think that's partly true, certainly on the festival scene. Uh, Hong Kong films uh, became more sort of generally, you know, recognized as a solid tradition, whereas the Korean uh, shift seemed to be more original and dynamic and fresh. But there's a difference, too, I think, in that Hong Kong cinema never really fostered an art house sector. It never had much of an experimental wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very much a genre and director-driven cinema. And it was also a bit weird compared to Hollywood. It was Hollywood, but Hollywood done in a different key, a kind of discordant key. Uh, a little bit on, this, on the cheesy sides, uh, some people would say, certainly more outrageous and more uh, kind of in your face and not afraid to seem silly or stupid in various ways. Whereas it struck me that from the beginning of that new Korean wave, that was a much more polished, self-conscious um, Hollywood-style cinema that also had other layers or levels, other sort of independent wings, art house wings, and so on. So that alongside very, very well-made genre films like Bong Joon-ho's The Host, you also had some uh, really sort of offbeat things, and, and Hong Sang-soo would fit into that trend as well. So, I mean, there was a sense that, in a way, uh, I don't mean to make this sound too weird, but, but Korean cinema was a bit more like the breadth that you get in uh, American cinema between very big blockbusters, very big star-driven, genre-driven productions, and then a sort of a mid-range of mid-range genre pictures like uh, romantic comedies, which were very big in Korea at that time, action pictures and uh, things that are very much close to, you know, the everyday cinema we know, and then also a kind of art house indie wing that was rather independent. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of different levels, uh, sort of a, a blockbuster cinema, uh, a, a mid-range cinema, prestige pictures, and then also uh, sort of down and dirty genre pictures, as well as an art house wing, that seemed a, a much wider bandwidth, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. for Korean cinema than we would find in Hong Kong. So that was something I thought that was quite interesting about South Korean cinema. And Hong fits right in, because Hong films are, I won't say he's like their mumblecore, but there's a sense in which his films are so low budget, so uh, simplified at a certain level in terms of production, in terms of visual values and budgets and things like that, that he kind of has that parallel to our American, you know, no-budget indie scene. Mm-hmm. And so early at this stage in his career, you actually brought Hong to Madison for a three-film retrospective, which was complete at the time, the three films you just mentioned, right. at our right. Wisconsin Film Fest, including the U.S. premiere of Virgin Strip Bear by our bachelors. I'd like to hear how that, how that happened and uh, what it was like to bring him to Madison. Yeah, it was part of a package. We were really lucky. I, mean, I like to brag that we had the first Hong retrospective, but that just meant that we only had three films. Mm-hmm. But we, we spotted him early, and uh, it was really thanks to Tony Raines who, who we got Hong, because Tony was an expert in Asian cinema, and one of the big film programmers and writers about Asian cinema at that time came, and he put together a whole big package for us and arranged for uh, Hong to come. And uh, we showed many other things, too. We showed about, I think, maybe eight or nine uh, Korean films. Mm-hmm. 
And this was at a time when the, um, the Korean studies program was just getting started. So we had good support from the language uh, departments. So uh, Hong was, I was, uh, I was struck to find out when I met him that he had had American film training. He went to the, your old stomping ground, Chicago. Right. He was in the Art Institute, the School of the Art Institute for Film. And so that was interesting, a point of contact. And we talked about his reference points. But one of the two or three things that struck me were, first, he wasn't a really deep-dyed cinephile, it seems to me. I mean, he was much more, in a way, like Wang Gar Wai, someone who reads books, reads novels, European novels. Uh, he thinks in terms of a literary sensibility, I think, more than a cinematic one, even though he knew a lot of films. Mm -hmm. The other thing was that his uh, he, favorite directors coincide with some of mine, that is uh, Bresson and Ozu particularly. We had some interesting talks about Ozu. And I began to think, yeah, there is a kind of connection there with his work, too. The emphasis on everyday life, coincidences and casual meetings, um, things like that. And drinking, of course. Right. Uh, but, but then also, um, he was very quiet. I mean, he wasn't uh, promoting himself. He wasn't selling himself. Uh, and that was striking to me, too, that he was much more of a classic, you know, introspective artist figure, I thought. He did like to drink, though. That we did learn. Uh, he liked to drink. So that was <laughs> well, uh, the place. For it, and so, exactly, he was right at home here in Madison. So, uh, but he was great mm -hmm. with the crowds, and uh, people, I think, were quite impressed seeing the three films playing in our Cinematech's own home in 4070 Violas. Seeing those three films in, across, I think, about three days, I think people saw here is a real new vision, a new way of thinking about cinema. So, I think our efforts to promote him as an important voice were successful. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say that, you know, he's a filmmaker with literary references, because even in his films, which often the main characters can be filmmakers, and there's uh, scenes at Q&As and stuff like that, but still, they're always carrying around paperbacks, and, you know, yep. that's sort of the main reference point that you actually see in his movies. Yeah, his people are readers. I mean, it doesn't have a lot of cinephilic references. They are, as you say, very often... Uh, filmmakers themselves, but often they're literary filmmakers like him, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're also, you know, very fraught with personal problems, too. Yeah. But he, uh, he seemed to me a classic example of a person who found himself kind of late in life. I mean, it's striking that his first film is made when he's 35 years old, hmm. which is rather late for a director to start. And now he's 60 this year, you know, so he's kind of an older figure. Hmm. But he started late partly because he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. He didn't even though his mother and father were involved in the film industry, as you probably know, they were film distributors, uh, they, um, he didn't really grow up with a big cinephilia culture, it seems. He was much more um, at loose ends for many years and finally found himself when he came to, New York, to, uh, to the U.S. to make films in Chicago. So, late bloomer, but he's made up for it. That's what I was going to say. Of yeah. He's made, you know, I mean, geez. absolutely. I mean, you know, this many years later, since you brought him to Madison, he's the most frequently shown filmmaker in the history of the Wisconsin Film Festival. And that's really? partially just because he's so prolific, right? He's made 24 films in as many years features. Wow. And wow. he's released that's as many as three a year. Uh, so he's, yeah. ma he's making up for lost time. There's not many. Absolutely. Yeah, there's not many directors that these days that kind of keep that pace. You can think of Takeshi Miike or Shun Sono, right. but besides right. maybe like Fassbender, you almost have to go back to right. the early sound era, like, you know, Hawks and Ford, who are working at that yep. kind of clip and under very different circumstances, you know. That's a very good point yeah. that, that I think a lot of filmmakers spend a long time on each project. 
Whereas some filmmakers, I think in the States, maybe Soderbergh comes as close mm, yeah, as this, that's good who just knocks them out, you know, just make make it, you know, do it, do a couple of, kind of a couple a year, you know, if you can. So, yeah, it's true. Now, he, with with, with the, the directors you mentioned, especially, I mean, they often have a repertory company or a group of people they can work with over and over. I mean, Fassbender clearly did. And some of the others you mentioned uh, as well. Uh, Hong has that to some extent, too. He does use the same actors, um, not obsessively, but frequently. And, of course, he does every... In a way, his production methods are so simplified that it's rather easy for him to make several in a year. It's just that the way he does it is so, I don't know what you say, unroutinized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's just... He, he can he can come up with an idea for a film, start the film, and because they are so cheap to make, uh, he doesn't really need a huge budget to get going. And then the actors trust him, and he just goes with the movie. My it's a fascinating process. Yeah, my understanding is that he actually writes the film on set, essentially, the morning before he shoots each section. Is that, Do you know more about that process? A little bit. It's, it's changed over the years. He started with a complete script for the day the pig fell on the well. Right. And then he, he more and more weaned himself away to use treatment. So he would sketch out the entire film, but as a treatment. And then, as you say, write the individual scenes on the day of the shooting. But now he doesn't even often have a treatment. He just gets up in the morning at 4 a.m. And, and writes that day's scenes. And then he uh, he knows where he's going to go. He knows where the locale is. So when they get to location, he gives the, the pages to the actors. They have 30 minutes to an hour to prepare while he's setting up the camera, setting up the lights, deciding on that stuff. Then there's a rehearsal, and then they do it. And uh, sometimes there's even not that much rehearsal, apparently. They just do it. And he says he can do three or four scenes a day at some, in some cases. Wow. Production's really fast. Uh, post-production is a month, maybe, but it's very—it's mostly just sound. He records live sound for the most part, as far as I can tell. So, you know, it's it's stripped down, and uh, it does have that. He's—I he, think he's almost unique. I mean, the only the only people I can think of who do this the same way would be the Iranian filmmakers, who have such a stripped-down crew and make these films so simply and, and locations often with, you know, a video camera or a cell phone or whatever, and then get the thing right out there, it's it's really a, a whole new way of making cinema that gets a huge audience. I mean, it, it's in festivals, they play con. Uh, it's the most bare-bones kind of minimalism you can think mm-hmm. of. And yet, it's really the imagination of the, of the storytelling and the, 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 the feel, the texture of the movies, the flavor of the movies that give it such a distinctive era. Yeah, and, you know... It... He also is extremely consistent just in, you know, his subject matter and his style. You know, it's not like he yep. uh, does genre or anything like that. You know, the, the films no. are extremely similar, even if you're just a casual viewer. It might even be difficult to remember sometimes which one's which, you know. Yeah, for me, even I remember I, I remember the situations, but the titles, maybe I don't remember and so on. I mean, there's so many. And yes, and he's commented on the fact that sometimes the same line of dialogue will occur across from film to film. And he doesn't remember. The uh, the uh, the crew will say, wait, you used this, this line in another film. And he'll say, oh, did I? Okay, well, still. <laughs> I mean, apparently there was one year, the, the year of, of, of Hill of Freedom, where the phrase business or pleasure uh, was used in all three films. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, I can't prove that. But uh, 
anyway, it does seem that the repetition is really crucial to him. And you get into the repetitions within the films, but also the repetitions across films and the situations. And suddenly you realize there's a kind of a network or like a garden path. You're Absolutely. I feel like he's a filmmaker who gets more interesting the deeper you go down his filmography. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because everything becomes a variation on something else. It's like this almost like a gigantic ma map of all the forking paths, mm -hmm. you know, tree branching diagrams. Well, let's say it's a man and a woman who are competing for the same woman, or let's say it's two men competing for a woman, or two women competing for a man, or let's say it's in a cafe, or let's say it's in a hotel, or let's say it's on a beach. You know, I just, these kinds of limited variations. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not going to be on a spaceship, we're not going to be an extra <laughs> film, but still, these limited variations within a kind of little world, and the characters are very similar from film to film in many cases, and yet he finds all these ingenious things to do with it. It's just really fascinating. Like a novelist who keeps writing the story about comparable characters, but varying it each time. So he makes a lot of movies, as we've been discussing. But if our listeners are new to Hong's, you know, specific kind of cinematic universe, uh, the 67 minute Hill of Freedom seems a great entry point. Uh, like yeah. all of his films, this one focuses on misunderstandings between men and women. In this case, a Japanese man named Mori, who comes to Seoul to win back his ex, who's nowhere to be found. But, um, of course, the pleasures of a Hong Sang-soo movie are as much in his storytelling games as the incidents, if not more so. Absolutely. The narrative trick in Hill of Freedom is that most of the film's action is recounted through a letter written from one character to another. But early on, the letters dropped, so the pages are mixed up. So the letter is read out of order, which is how we experience the film. Yeah. Right. So, what, David, what are your initial thoughts on Hill of Freedom within Hong's work? Yeah. Well, when I first saw it, I saw it again at a film festival in, in Vancouver, and I thought it was a very ingenious piece of work because it, it really has two protagonists, but one protagonist is barely mm -hmm. in it, um, the woman Kwan. You think she's going to be the protagonist because this film starts with her and so forth. Uh, getting the uh, getting her mail, which has been piled up at the Language Institute where she works, but then uh, it's mainly Maury's story. But as you say, it's the first suggestion is, and it's emphasized with one of his patented zoom shots when the letter is thrown out of order, the, the, sh the sheets of paper are cast out of order as they fall on the steps. That sort of sets up the idea of well, she's going to read this letter, but it's uh, going to be somewhat out of temporal order the events we see and and we get that to some extent uh however um one letter one is left behind as you pointed out one one sheet of paper just she never gets to read and of course that leads to an interesting question like okay what scene won't mm -hmm. we see but also even the idea of the shuffled pages of the letter doesn't quite consummate because if we take the voiceover that we're going to hear uh as just his voice speaking the lines that are written in the letter there are some weird anomalies in that. Like sometimes we're hearing him's thoughts at the moment of the scenes as they mm -hmm. happen. And sometimes we hear her thoughts mm -hmm. uh, as a voiceover. So where are they coming from? And so there's a, it becomes a question like, this has been a kind of bait and switch maybe to get us into the movie with this idea of, okay, we're gonna have a classic situation, framing story, flashbacks. Frame story, reading the letter, flashbacks of the events that are recounted in the letter. But that gets, not only do the events get scrambled up, but the idea of the interpenetration of the events, like what is, who's, who's speaking, who's understanding this, gets kind of muddled as well. Add to the fact, and I don't want to have too many spoilers, but as you know, 
there's the prospect of a dream or two thrown into this. Absolutely. So, you know, so the question is, is the dream in the letter? Is the dream something that wasn't in the letter? It's hard yeah, to imagine. I, I mean, Pretty I have good. my own thoughts about which dream yeah. is in the letter, yeah, yeah. which one's not. Um, right. But the thing is, it's, it's, this is at 67 minutes. It's such an adventure in storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, to do this, simple means, I mean, you, I, I hate to say it, but I think it can almost be a student film. I mean, there's a way in which everything he does here could be done by somebody with a couple of friends in Absolutely. a camera, basically. Yeah. And yet it's so fresh and thoughtful, the way he, he gets us involved. Because... The other thing I think that maybe people don't talk enough about is he gets your, your, your narrative interest by some very, we might say, primal situations, okay? A man wants a woman. A woman wants a man. These are like basic. And we'll go with a movie. We'll let the movie cook along a little bit because that's an intriguing situation. It's a very basic storytelling you know, mm-hmm. tag. And so to bring him in looking for this lost woman, when we know she is going to show up at some point because she's reading the letter. She's in Seoul. So he might find her. So there's a kind of overarching suspense or uncertainty about it. And at the same time, we're not sure that he absolutely will. And he meets other characters and they have their own issues and so on. So there's a kind of strong narrative propulsion to something as simple as this. And he he really does milk it. I won't say it's Hitchcock, but he does milk it for a lot of interest and even suspense, like when he finally gets together with a young woman who runs the cafe. I mean, that, you know, will they, will that, will that resolve, will it not resolve? Then later we learn, again, through a scrambled out of order thing, there seems to have been something going on with her ex Mm -hmm. too, you know, uh, off screen. Was that the missing page of the letter? Is that the scene that the woman Kwan doesn't read to find out about that scene? I mean, and also, all these kinds of uncertainties are framed, I think, with some pretty powerful um, narrative teases that, that whet our appetite. Absolutely. Um, one other thing that strikes me about Hill of Freedom is that the device of the letter, it's unusually diegetic for Hong. Like, there's a real letter that gets mixed up. Often right. he does these kind of games, but they're sort of externally applied. And he doesn't give you yeah. clear benchmarks for, like, or, you know, stamps, like time stamps, are like we're moving here, we're moving there, ever. But in this film, right. at least you have the letter that sort of gets mixed up and you see her yeah. shuffling the pages. That seems unusual in his um, films. You're right. I mean, I think that he doesn't usually quite signal it that explicitly, but I think by the time you get to some of those uh, late films, um, I'm trying to think now, the one uh, you'll remember better than I, the, the one oh, in another mm-hmm. country where you have the three screenplay versions. Right. That, that's right, isn't it? That's the one at the hotel on the with Isabel Luperre, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the Isabel Luperre. So I remember there are three. The the woman, the daughter, sitting at the at the uh, terrace right. has these three versions of a screenplay. And even though it isn't marked explicitly, you do have a sense that these are three variations on the situation that we're going to see. You know that that sort of thing. So sometimes he does mark it, as you say, diegetically, but other times he will just have a title. I remember in. Um, in uh, Virgin Strip Bear, there's just like a couple of titles that come up and say this, then that, you know, splits the film up into two parts. But for a while there, I thought he was going to retreat on me. I mean, I wrote something about him after uh, Woman on the Beach uh, in the mid-2000s, and I was struck by how two or three films, like Woman is the Future of Man, Tale of Cinema, and Woman on the Beach, all seem to be a bit of a step backward for him in terms of these narrative games narrative structures, they seem to be more linear and more sort of socially mm-hmm. critical 
in a straightforward way. I mean, all his films, I think, are socially critical, particularly about men. But these seem to be much more of a classic romantic triangle comedy hmm. drama without some of these formal twists and turns. But then he went back to his old ways. Yeah, I feel like Hill of Freedom's in a particularly I, I, fertile moment for him. You know, is uh, Right Now, Wrong yes. Dan, Yourself and Yours. These are some of his most fun yeah. in terms of the games he's playing. Yeah. Yeah. I actually feel yeah. like the one since he's also sort of, his life in some ways seems to have become more the what he's yes. uh, obsessing over with the Kim yes. and He movies that have come since. Right. You want to say something about that? I mean, I know a little about it. But oh, just, I mean, all I, my knowledge is basically that he had an affair with Kim Min-hee during the making of Right Now, Wrong Then, and then they made five movies in the span of, you know, something like 18 months or two years together that sort of yep. address this in um, a sideways manner. And I think that cumulatively, they're really effective. Um, but they aren't, I mean, yeah. Day After, I think, is the one that still sort of uh, plays games with time, like the old films. But mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. of the other ones are more straightforward. He's after other things in those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what happened, of course, was that it was very unusual because uh, he had this affair with her and his wife uh, refused to give him a divorce. He asked for a divorce and she wouldn't divorce him, and the court found for the wife, saying that uh, it is not a philandering husband can't declare um, that grounds for divorce, hmm. that there has to, the wife has to initiate it. It turns out that there's been a, that this kind of law, which seems a bit inhibiting, especially for men, is actually one of the few ways that women in Korea have had to, uh, an opportunity to kind of participate in uh, that kind of uh, situation in a marriage, to give, have some marital rights. So she, as far as I know, still has not granted him the divorce, even though they're not living together and they have a daughter and so on. So a lot of this, as you say, is autobiographical cinema. But now the, la the later ones, I have not seen Grass, I have to say, or The Woman Who Ran. Yeah, Woman Who Ran so just came out this year, just before uh, it all went yep, down. Yeah. But Hotel by the River, he's doing other things there. That is a kind of a linear film, I suppose. But there, the play with point of view is important. And this might be worth mentioning, too. One of the striking things, and this goes back to the day a pig fell into the well, is... Um, he often you're often not sure who the protagonist of the film is. I mean, it's it's true that in the case of uh, Hill of Freedom, we I think we do sense that Marty is really the main character. But they have the pig fell into a well has like four or five mm -hmm. main characters, and I think by the time you get to the hotel by the river, uh, it would be hard to say that any one of those characters was really the most salient. And of course, it's a hotel, so that justifies having a lot of different characters appearing in different scenes. But um, he does still seem to be exploring his options and playing around some with narrative uh, possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the letter in Hill of Freedom that sort of sets off these narrative possibilities, using that as a storytelling device, reminded me of your recent book on 1940s cinema, Reinventing Hollywood. Um, uh -huh. I know Hong uh -huh. is probably not a cinephile in that uh, deep manner like that, but I wonder what precursors you can find for this kind of a device in the history of cinema and how Hill of Freedom might expand on the tradition of using letters. Yeah, I mean, letters, it goes back to silent cinema. Letters were often, often used not just to transmit information among characters in a period that didn't have cell phones and so on, but also because they could frame narratives. When you wanted to embed a story in another story, you would have a diary or a letter or some text that would tell you the prior story or what had already happened. And when sound came in, that was continuing right through the 30s and 40s, usually with a voiceover uh, included of the writer of the letter. And you see it used 
right through the period of classic studio cinema. I think of The Searchers. The letters of Martin Pauly go back and tell about his and Ethan Edwards' search for the missing daughter. So this is a kind of a convention of classic cinema. The letter with the voiceover and keeping keeping in mind uh, the reaction of the reader of the letter mm-hmm. as salient in the present. So he does that and, and clearly contributes to that tradition and counts on us knowing that convention. But at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, he scrambles it up. He throws it up because sometimes the voiceover is there and it guides us. Early in the film, it's quite helpful, mm-hmm. I think. The Morty comments do anchor us. But for instance, later in the film, we realize that one of the one of the scenes that we see is really his arrival at the guest house, which you know precedes anything else we saw before. So the voiceover there is not helping us. We just suddenly see him there at the guest house, and the woman starts to introduce him to the routines of the guest house, the landlady, and you realize, wait a minute, this is a prior scene. And there, there's no voiceover to help us, as I recall. So the situation is that there's a, um, a kind of training process that goes on. The film teaches us how to watch it, but it teaches us in a kind of sneaky way, because some of the things it teaches us won't be reliable. We won't be able to count on them. So to my way of thinking, this is a, a, you know, a, a new twist on these conventions that you just sketched, the idea that the, the letter seems to anchor us firmly mm-hmm. in the past, and yet it doesn't in this case. It, it flips around. Um, to discuss another aspect of Hong's style, um, he almost never cuts within scenes. Uh, he rarely even reframes the camera. You mentioned he has this sort of patented right. zoom that he'll sometimes do where uh, he starts off with a wide shot yep. and sort of snaps into one character at a crucial moment. Um, but even those are only occasional, I would say. Uh, he lets scenes play out at length, yep. often in a two-shot. Yep. Yep. Uh, what does he get from this kind of style? It's a very different yep. viewing experience from the typical shot-reverse shot that we see so so often. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating because in classic cinema, when people do use long takes, the usual sort of motivation or alibi for it has been there's so much to see. You fill the frame. You think of the classic Orson Welles shots where you have a big close up in the foreground, but there's something to look at in the middle ground, another actor or part of the set. And then there's still something further back, a third thing to look at. So you kind of jam the frame. The long take is often identified with a kind of abundance of what to look at. And one of the things you find, I think, in a lot of directors at this period, it's not just him, but it's Takeshi Kitano and other directors from Asia at this period, in a kind of cycle that's been called Asian minimalism, a kind of broad trend, is that they don't pack their frames. They do use long takes, but they're kind of drained uh, frames. They don't have a lot to see, or at least what you see is iterated. It's just the same thing again and again. Nothing much changes. So with Hong, I think, there are a couple of things. First, I think it's very much tied to his mode of production. Uh, a long take, this system we were just talking about, writing the script in the morning, rehearsing it before shooting, shooting in real time, and then moving on. That it inclines you to use long takes. That is, you don't, to set up for a new camera position is time consuming. You gotta relight the shot, you gotta do all this stuff. And in a way, the zoom is part of that. I think the, the zoom is a cheap and quick way to get a close up or a medium shot without breaking up into different setups. So there's a sense in which I think it fits his mode of production to have these long takes. The other thing I think is, though the shots I find quite beautiful, they're clean, brightly lit, 
well-edged, a lot of interesting colored work in these in these scenes. Sometimes the color palette is narrow, like in a, the bedroom mm-hmm. scene, for instance. But scenes in this, you know, it's a pretty small palette. But for instance, the scene in the cafe with the American expatriate who runs the, the bar, you know, that's a beautifully lit scene. And there are several other scenes that are just full of color and vibrancy. Well, those kinds of things, I think, are there. They're nice uh, attractions. But the main thing I think he gets with the long take and the static camera is a concentration Absolutely. on the actors and their speech. These are talky films. If he were told you cannot have any speech in your films, I have <laughs> to wonder how he could make a film because his films are really, really talky. And it's interesting that before he came into cinema, he actually started taking courses in theater. He actually thought he would be a, a, a theater person. Uh, it didn't work out. He didn't like theater. He didn't like theater people, actually, it seems. But he did take courses and study theater. And again, giving the verbal sort of orientation he has, being interested in writers and so on, it kind of makes sense that, you know, these films are dialogue-driven films for the most part. They're not landscape-driven. They're not, you could say Power of Kangwon Province is to some extent, and On the Beach at Night Alone is to some extent. But basically, these are interactions among characters who talk a lot. Absolutely. And so I think the long takes are really built around that. Well, and it's striking to me for, for films so talky, as you say, that Hill of Freedom is frequently in English, which is not the native language of any of the characters. Right. And this is not the right. only time he's done this in his career. He frequently right. experiments right. with people speaking in a language that is not their yeah. own. It just seems really un, uh, unusual to me th- that such a talky movie would be this way. Do you have anything to make of that in particular? Why Why you think he pursues that? Yeah, I mean, he wants the clearly he wants the uh, sense of of Marty coming from another culture, so that people will say, "Are you Chinese? Are you Japanese?" You know, and so forth. But also, the English things is is in a, bit, in a sense it's a touch of realism because the lingua franca of a lot of Asia is English because of people who speak uh, Chinese or say Cantonese versus Mandarin versus whatever, often they find themselves communicating in English as the only common tongue they have. So in a sense, this isn't unrealistic that the people, particularly those who are fairly well-educated college graduates and so on would speak English. Although high school, I think it's English is taught in Korea as well. So there's a sense in which I think there's, that's just realism at some level, but of course, it also gives everybody an aura of strangeness because they can communicate in their own language. Often the Korean characters are talking to each other in Korean, and then they switch into English to talk to Morty. So he definitely feels as an outsider um, that he has to do that. But in another way, I think the fact that he's writing to her in English emphasizes that alienation or distance that mm-hmm. you have. That's the only bridge that they right. have. It's another communication barrier between them. A communication barrier, exactly. Also, they were teaching ESL, I think, at that's that true, language, yeah. language institute. That's how they mm-hmm. met, was, you know, in teaching Koreans English. Mm-hmm. Interest in Korean cinema at that time, I think, was tied to a general sense of Korea as kind of a cool thing, you know? There was this trend they called Hallyu, which was essentially South Korea is the new Japan. Because in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the coolest national culture in Asia was Japan, Japanese music, J-pop, fashion, uh, movies, of course, and so on. But what started to happen in the 90s was that Korean, South Korean culture, when it was freed up after coming out of dictatorship, uh, Korean culture was seen as the new chic Asian culture. So fashion again, K-pop, and uh, TV series, Korean TV series were very popular around Asia, 
uh, throughout Asia. They were being dubbed and subtitled through in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, in mainland China, and other places. And I think, in a way, at different levels of filmmaking, the film culture um, benefited from that because they, they were all part of this general cool Korea trend. And you still see it now. I mean, you think of a movie like Train to Busan, mm -hmm. which had such huge success around the world, almost $100 million, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a, a very good zombie movie, you know, made in Korea with no stars that Americans would know, is a cult figure, is a cult a film now. And to me, the ultimate, the culmination of this is the success of Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Absolutely. You know, it took 25 years, but there it is, you know. I mean, there is a film that, who, who would have predicted, even two or three years ago, a Korean film would win the Best Picture at the Academy Awards. This was unthinkable. So there's been a long, slow, but powerful surge of interest in Korea as a world, South Korea as a world arts culture, I guess I would say, uh, that has, you know, really brought Hong and other directors of talent along with it. Um, and of course, Hong is the coolest of the cool in uh, yeah, cinema so. culture. And so we'll be bringing Hill of Freedom to you this week. Uh, and uh, we plan to bring more Hong films to you in the future, as long as he keeps making them. David, are there places that you would recommend our viewers go if they want to continue exploring Hong Sang-soo after Hill of Freedom? Any particular favorites that come to mind? Oh, I like so many of them. I mean, I'm very fond of Oki's movie. I said he wasn't that much of a cinephile, but that one has a, a movie within a movie in it. Very clever one. Um, uh, Tale of Cinema, that too, uh, is got a movie within a movie. So there is some things like that. I'm very fond of, of, of Ha Ha Ha, I like very much. Um, I'm just looking down the list of films here. In Another Country, I like very much. Um, they're, in a way, what's interesting is they're all of a piece. I mean, if you like one, you probably like them all. Yeah. They'll have their own little special flavor, but they are. They, what's fascinating is they seem so slight at some level. They're not pretentious. They're not. Sometimes you think, oh, it's going to get pretentious when a character like Marty says, uh, I'm reading a book about time, and the author is a philosopher who thinks that time is this and that. I mean, you think, oh, no, we're in, you know, Eric Romer territory here. But actually, it's about the character. The character is fumbling around with these ideas. It isn't a Hong trying to show off. It's the character really, honestly, coming to grips with something he's trying to understand. So there's a sense in which, I guess, the, um, the, uh, the intellectual tone of the film is so light. Mm -hmm. And you get that with the music often. And the, I mean, who else has yellow credits? I know. <laughs> you know, yellow's his favorite color. It turns out. Yeah. And there, I find just so, like, it's, like, it's just like I'm settling in every time one of those starts. You know, settling. it's just very comfortable. You're mm -hmm. in good hands. Yeah. You know, that sense you're in good hands. It turns. I found a great quote from him when someone said, "What do you do?" He says, "I pursue cute things." <laughs> And all I can think of is his use of music. After, well, after he's got the, the dog in this one. The dog mm -hmm. and the and this tinkly piano music, yeah. and you know, in a way, nothing is really it's full, desperately at stake. At some level, it's not high drama, yeah, high melodrama. It's sort of like people just go along, you know? It seems to me almost like his films have gotten less severe in a certain way as yeah. they've gone on. I mean, yeah. some of the most recent ones have, it's returned a little bit, but, you know, in this period, certainly, they're more enjoyable yeah. just on surface He's level. He's playful. It's fun. I think the, only, the thing is that's consistent is an attack on male vanity. I mean, there really is throughout all these films, from the first one on, the, you know, you know, the plot only works if the men are jerks, yeah. you know, I mean, it's sort of down the line. Well, even it's yeah, fascinating. You were, you mentioned when Maury starts talking about uh, the book he's reading and, you know, in the context of that, he's wasted 
Um, and they're at this bar, and yeah, yeah, he starts, time. you know, sort of yeah. mumbling about this to him. Yeah, and and she, her response to listening to him sort of mutter this is like, very interesting. Tell me about it later, okay? Like, can we yeah. talk about anything else? No. no, it's true. And, you know, the other thing you mentioned, I have to slip this in, but you can cut it if you want to. It turns out he claims that he actually gets his actors drunk for scenes like that. Have you run into that? I haven't, but in one interview, I've wondered In about one it. interview, he claims, he said he doesn't like actor performances when they're trying to pretend to be junk, drunk. So he gets his actors drunk. And then he also takes them out drinking after they shoot to study them and how they behave when they're drunk. Mm. And I've only been to Korea a couple times, but the times I've been, I've definitely seen people who I never thought would get drunk, get drunk. And you do see them behave in rather different ways. I mean, so there's this, oh, I guess... I guess I think that he's kind of like a documentarist at some level. <laughs> you know, like, how do Koreans behave when they're drunk? Well, there's a good chance that the actors you see in the movie are really drunk. And, it, you know, his films do have a light, lightness of touch about them. But at the same time, these are hard drinking movies. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, absolutely. It's, it's, and smoking movies, too. Yeah. I mean, you think... Is everybody smoking Korea now? You know, I mean, young, old, everybody. They even comment on the strength of the cigarettes Maury's smoking in this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not strong enough. Too strong for me. Yeah. No, no, it's strange. But but Hong himself is a a professional smoker. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen him photographed with that one. No. Um, well, uh, I thought we might just quickly talk about uh, what your blog, you've still been posting um, throughout mm-hmm. the quarantine and everything, and you've started doing these mm-hmm. little stabs at happiness posts. Do you want to just tell oh, our, yeah. our listeners about that if they're looking for, I think everybody might be looking oh, for yeah. that right now. Yeah. Uh, well, the idea was I, I want to write more, something more serious, I still hope to, and I've written one fil- a b- blog that was about what to watch, uh, you know, co- confined spaces films mm-hmm. that might be fun to watch during the lockdown. And Kristen did one uh, binging on streaming that she uh, recommended some titles for. Uh, but then I thought, what if we just did some little short things? It just little a little pep, a little perking up, you know. So I did one from an Indian film and then one from a Hong Kong film. And I'm going to do another. I've uh, archived about half a dozen little clips from different movies that uh, cheer me up. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to put them up every maybe a couple every week or so, just to let people get a look. Maybe they haven't seen the film, and they can, if they like the clip that they see, they might try to investigate seeing it online somehow. Or maybe they've seen it and it reminds them that they liked it. Uh, it's a kind of a nostalgia spray. So just you know, trying to trying something different given these crazy circumstances we're in. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, David. It's always great to hear you talk about uh, cinema. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mike. And you, I always learn a lot from you, too.